The last word on sport on Today FM. With Carlsberg, official beer partner of the FAI. Probably the best partnership in the world. Get the facts, be drink aware, visit drinkaware.ie. Zach Baradi is with me, author of Life Begins in Leitrim from Kurdistan to Crow Park. Zach, thank you very much for being with us. Nominated for our Best Sports Book of the Year in the Unpost Irish Book Awards and co-written with Niall Kelly. Just tell us, though, to start, I want to go to near the end of the book to start becoming an actual official Irish citizen and how difficult it actually was to process all the paperwork. How bad was it? Um, well, sometimes I'm a bit laid back, so a little bit of a disaster sometimes trying to be organised. But um, I should have applied 2010 when my parents were eligible to apply. But then I kind of left it too late and then left it for two or three years. I didn't think because I'd be one of them, I'd be afraid to travel on a plane. So I'm kind of more, I don't travel that much outside of Ireland. So if I was going on holidays or something, I'd be going to the west of Ireland or down to Kerry somewhere, you know. And then you had an incident coming back with a GA team back into the country where you were stuck in immigration for hours. Yeah, that's where I was like, oh, I need to get my act together. Um, we went over to play a hurling match against Warwickshire, I think it was at the time. And uh, there was about 36, 37 of us, you know, walked off and everybody had their Irish passport and their you know, in their hand, and then I was like, had to go into the known EU side, and the queue was massive. I say I was there for about two and a half hours, and the lads were still waiting on me. And at least they waited for you, which is a good sign. Yeah, and then um, I was like, right, I need to, you know, get my act together and get going. And then after that, I applied very quick, got onto a solicitor, and do all the paperwork. And sometimes there's there's delays as well, like because I. I didn't have a birth cert and you're trying to get a birth cert and then you're, you know, it's it's not easy, you know, when you, especially it's a lot harder for a, you know, if someone with a refugee status when you, when you're born in a, in, a, in a refugee camp and no birth cert and then you're, they're looking for your parents, you know, passports and they said Iran and I'm born in Iraq and it's kind of messy and they're looking for this and that. It's just not, it's probably a lot easier, it'd be a lot easier if I was holding an Iraqi passport, Iranian that would save all the hassles, but because I'd never had any other passport, passport it would make it a lot harder and they get into more detail. But it's not the people's fault either to work in that Department of Justice because when they see something, it's, it's different, you know. Yours is a fairly unique story. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more different, you know. And um, But anyway, so I got, I got my passport, so I was delighted. And You're now officially an Irish citizen. Yeah. Although, as you write in the book, you've been Irish for so many years at this stage, you didn't need a passport to prove that. Yeah, you, you don't obviously, you know, but uh, but only think about a passport. It kind of gives you security and belongings where you're, you know, where you're from, and it's a lot easier, you know, if you're ever applying for a job. If you make, if you have your Irish passport, it makes it a lot easier. And if you have that travel document, it's a lot more, a lot more difficult. Every year you have to renew it, and it's it just it it makes you know it's the only passport I hold and. I'm very proud of, you know, holding an Irish passport and Ireland, it's, Ireland is my country. I might have a, you know, Kurdish blood and an Irish heart, but um, Ireland's been good to us. A lot of Kurdish people I meet, fellas my age, and they wouldn't hold any other passport than an Irish passport and they call Ireland home. And How many Kurdish people are living in Ireland? Do you have any idea? I, I reckon there's an estimate about three and a half thousand people, three thousand from, that's all people from Kurdistan of Iran, Kurdistan of Iraq. 
Kurdistan of Turkey and Kurds of Syrian as well. So there's there's a mixture, but I think uh, the most Kurds in Ireland are the Iranian side because a lot of them came over when the war started in the in the Iraq Iran war. Back around late nineteen eighties, was it? Late nineteen eighties, yeah. There was about there was about fifty thousand people from our area were displaced in the war because we're right in the border. It's literally um, the first place Iraq invaded was called Kermasha and we're right in the border to Kurdistan of Iraq. How much do you remember of growing up there in the camps? I remember everything because I came over when I was 11 so it's literally like, you know, you'll remember primary school if you think about it. Yeah. You leave primary when you're 11 or 12 so I kind of, I remember everything. It was, um, it's uh, sometimes when you were living there it was just, life was normal and then it's to like, Moved over to Ireland. Things changed. Well, life was normal because you didn't know any differently. Your parents had known an awful lot differently, though, hadn't they, before they ended up with you and your brothers and sisters in the camp? That's right, yeah. So my parents would have been obviously a lot older and they would have remembered everything. But they never talked about Hatton when we were about Iraq. Or never, politics didn't even exist, you know, because, because it was a dictatorship country. When you're living in a dictatorship country... Everybody lives in fear. It's like North Korea. Everybody lives in fear. And Iraq was no different to North Korea because if you said one word about Saddam, your whole family would be in prison. They'll never be seen again. And and that was it. It was like and especially if you're a you're a you're you're from you're a Kurd and you're not from there. So it was a lot harder because even if you see with the Kurds in the Kurds in Kurdistan of Iraq, the genocide, you know, they lost six thousand people in Close to 6,000 people in one day, chemical attack in 1988. And my parents weren't far close, uh, they weren't far living from there, a place called Zerayin, only about 20 minutes from Halabja when the chemical attack happened. And when that happened, there was thousands of people fleeing that war. And my parents uh, put up about 30, 40 people for a couple of days when the people lost everything in Halabja. And my parents were putting them up in their house. And then, funny, like, my mum was obviously when getting interviewed by Niall Kelly. And she said, um, like, I didn't know any of this. She said when, when the Iraqi government used to come during the day, bomb the villages, bomb the areas. So so during the day, they'd be spending, you know, spending the day up the mountains. And then at night, they'd come home. Because then the, the Iraqi planes wouldn't bomb the place at, uh, at night. Because obviously, the technology there is now with drones, there was none of that back then, you know. They didn't yeah. have any of that. And But it was just, it's a mad journey. It was just like... For a couple of years, they were trying to avoid. For two years, when they were they were living, they were trying to avoid. You know, Iraqi obviously Iraq and Iran was the height of the war as well. So there, two of them were bombing each other, and anybody could have you know lost their lives. And that's why my uh, my grandmother got hurt in that one of them. You know, attacks. You know, in the from the planes, and and there was many people that also lost their lives in that war. And there's many my dad's war. You know, obviously. There were some were Peshmerga fighters, Kurdish rebellions. Some of them lost their lives. We have relations that have fought in the war. We have in my other distant relations as well. They've been fighting against ISIS in Kurdistan. So Kurdish people, we have a history of war for the last hundred years. A history of both been oppressed and also have been let down extraordinarily by all sorts of people. All sorts of promises been made and never delivered. 
you hit the nail there and and, and and the mad thing as well it's, it's still happening to this day yeah. there's still Kurdish villages you know there's a Kurdish you know a refugee camp they're from Kurdistan of Turkey there's close to 15-20 thousand people are living in Kurdistan of Iraq in a refugee camp um, and that's still getting bombed every now and again by Turkish how, how did your family get out of the refugee camp and get to Ireland? we got out we came here as a, a political programme refugee and in 2002, because it was run by the run by the UN, the Red Cross, I think at the time, and obviously they were keeping an eye on the the people that were living there. there was, at that time, there was about fifteen thousand. Some people went back, snuck back into the country, like my grandparents did when they when they snuck back. And some people people sometimes were afraid to go back as well because they could they they could have you know. They could have been arrested for uh, uh, being a traitor or a, yeah. a, a spy, or there was all this going on, you know. Especially back then as well in the in the eighties, you know, it was it was just worth a mouth. When you came in two thousand and two with your parents, how many others? How many brothers and sisters as well with you? I had uh, nine brothers and two sisters. <laughs> big, <laughs> big family, big like Irish families. It's like in, exactly <laughs> where I'm living in Tala, and there's people that play Gaelic and hurling. Thomas, there some of them there. Their grandfather has eight brothers and five, and they were all grew up in a, a three bedroom house, and it's kind of similar, you know. But um, but my parents were the obviously my parents' obviously mentality was they're always going to probably end up back at home because even when we were in the refugee camp, we used to go we'll, we learn Kurdish. Then we'll go to a little kind of private things, you know. There's the the, the private the schools, the Kurdish schools, were set up were were funded by the Kurdish rebel fighters. Yeah, and they were based in the Kandil Mountains. You know, obviously they were probably ten hours away. But it was a fun that to learn our Kurdish, and um, and then at the same time, after that school, we'll go learn uh, Farsi, it's the Iranian language. So in case there was somewhere we're going back or sneaking back, so we were able to go back. If we were going back there, we have to learn Farsi in school, not Kurdish. But in Kurdistan, if Iraq people go to school, they learn Kurdish. But in Iran, Kurdish is banned to learn Kurdish. But you can speak Kurdish at home. Do you still speak Kurdish or Farsi? I speak Kurdish at home. Do you? Yeah, no Farsi. But my older brothers, they'll all speak Arabic, fluent, Kurdish. Four languages, all most of them. And of your family who came, unfortunately I know your father has passed away, but... Of your brothers and sisters and your mother, are they all still in Ireland or have many of them moved away from Ireland? They're all, we're all over here in Tala and except one borough, he moved over to Sweden, you know, obviously through the recession time. He yeah. have a lot of aunties and relations over there. He got a job down there and he never came back. So he loves it up there, but um, he comes home once a year or once in two years, you know, for a visit. But, um, but the rest of the family love it here, you know, and Ireland is home. What, what was Leitrim like when you moved there? I mean, I suppose for many people might think it was a culture shock, but was it something almost exotic to you when you arrived there, given the circumstances that you had been living in? It was it's completely different because massive culture shock. Everything was different because everything even... Everything was just different. If you we were in a refugee camp, it was we were kind of we were Kurdish, and then we kind of when we were in that refugee camp, the Kurdish people never lost their identity. We still everybody where we were still wore Kurdish clothes, and you know, and even around us was all the Arabs going around with their white dildashes, we call it, you know, like something like Sheikh Mohammed goes around, and you know, they all go around like that, and then we were just five six thousand people in one camp, and we were all just wearing Kurdish clothes, and then like we stood out from. 
from the camp and but people always you know kept their like, Kurdish identity there but when he came over things changed you know it was just a massive culture shock everything just the lifestyle everything changed you know and you hadn't any English at that stage either no, you? no English at all no, no word and this is important to the book you got into the GAA and you got into hurling in particular why? it was it was different and I kind of just loved you know you get more enjoyment out of it. I played. I played all sports when I was in, you know, when I was carrying Shannon. I used to be doing running for Carrick Athletic, and I was uh, playing soccer. I was playing Gaelic and hurling, and then I just said, you know, I'll just decide. I need to pick two. I was doing too much, so I just stuck with the hurling and Gaelic, and just hurling, just so just skillful game, and you get more enjoyment out of it. Um, it's like as I said to when the when the lads there today I said. I said, I can't watch that soccer at all, I said. You know, <laughs> every pass is a clamp, every clap is a, you know, every pass is a boo or a header white, you know, everything. I said, I said I'd said, rather watch the, go up and watch the, our Thomas Davis were playing, our tour team were playing the junior G Hurling final. I said, I'd rather go watch that than watch it. <laughs> you know, You're right. like an old-fashioned GA traditionalist yeah, in that respect more, anyway. Yeah, but, but the funny thing is, of course, you moved to Tala, you joined Thomas Davis, but you kept going back to play for the county, given that that's where you first landed, that's where they were able to claim you. And you had fantastic years culminating in an All-Ireland appearance in Croke Park. Yeah, it was, uh, it's been an, it was an amazing journey because I've been, you know, obviously Martin Kniff was my manager. He asked me and Kevin Glancy at the time they were there. And they were like, sure, come down and give it a go, you know, and give, give, give us a year and see how you get on, you know. But sure, I ended up playing for close to nine years then. And then, but there was times as well, it was going down, it was like, we're getting hammered in a lot of games and we were... You know, sometimes you're going down, you're getting bet by 30 points. You know, Leitrim was only a small little county, yeah. a small little fish. But, um, and, and we were always playing teams and every time you got a win, we were celebrating. It was like we're after winning All-Ireland because, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we don't often win that much in Leitrim. But when we win something, we celebrate it. Like, you know, it's like we're after winning the World Cup. And Can I ask you, did you ever experience any racist abuse on the GAA pitch or indeed in general? I'm not going to say I never did. I've got once or twice, but it, it wouldn't really bother me because it wouldn't. You know, Kurdish people, we have, we have bigger things going on in life with uh, with countries like Turkey bombing us with uh, drones and, you know, you know, every day just... Uh, then some idiot saying something to you. Yeah, just, with Kurdish people, it doesn't really bother us because we're, what's more important is just, you know, just people are Kurdish people is about survival in the Middle East. Well, just a couple of things, and this is slightly tangential, but I think it is relevant just to finish off. And it's a great read, the book Life Begins in Leitrim from Kurdistan to Crow Park. But Zach Marodi, what would you say to people now, Ukrainians coming to Ireland, as to what they should do and what Irish people should do in helping the Ukrainians 20 years on from your experience of arriving from Kurdistan? Well, I encourage the Irish people, you know, do the same, you know, for the do the same what they've done for our family, you know, that arrived in Leitrim or anywhere they're part of the country. And it's been the same. And I've seen, I've met many Kurdish people there on Saturday with Leitrim and, and it's the same. They've made many friends down in Leitrim and Carrick and Shannon. And it's the same in what I'm in Thomas Davis GA club. There's Kurdish, you know, refugees that came. They were looked after by their neighbours or friend or someone, 
you know it's the same with Ukraine I know it's a little bit sometimes where people are giving out you know about lack of houses lack of look people are just happy Ukrainians just be happy if they just have a roof over their head and to get away from the terror uh, of the attack of the Russians yeah, to get away and the same thing what happened to what's happening to Ukraine it's the same thing that's happened to Kurdish people and it's still going on hundreds of years of bombing and, and that's why there's close to 3 million Kurdish refugees are living in Europe to this day and sometimes obviously you know when they say we're from Kurdistan in Ireland is a bit more they wouldn't know much about Kurdistan but I hope after this book they will learn a lot about Kurdistan and um, all I say all we can do is help because and, and what's going to happen now there's close to probably what 50-60,000 Ukrainians living in Ireland yeah. not all of them are going to stay here because what happened when we were in Iraq there was 50,000 Kurdish refugees ended up in that the camp in this place you know you're going to have about 60% of them, 70% of them will go back to their own countries when the war stop because the ones the people that are in their 60s and 50s sometimes they just want to go home but there will be people who will end up staying here they and mightn't it, actually have thought of Ireland as a full time destination but yeah. hopefully we'll be welcoming to them to stay here in Ireland yeah, hopefully. But I think the Irish people are generally, you know, I always say Ireland's a cold country, but the people are warm people. They're, um, and, and Irish people are, they come here, I always say Irish people are like a crack. They're always up for a laugh. And, you know, you're always going to get, you know, a small, small percentage would always give out, you know, but 99% of Irish people are genuine people and they're, and they're always willing to help. And, and one thing about Ireland, there's Irish people, living all around the world. Everywhere you go, you meet hundreds of thousands of Irish people in England, America. You know, it's the same thing. Life begins in Leitrim, from Kurdistan to Croke Park. Zach Moradi, thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word of Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.